Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Thank you, everyone. I've already done my, my welcome and um, our Garner acknowledgement, but I will hand over to our wonderful curators, uh, Tansy Curtin, who, what is your, you'll have to explain your exact title because I will get it wrong. It's like International Art. Curator of International Art pre-1980. Pre-1980 and easy contemporary of, cura of uh, contemporary art. So that's uh, really easy to, to, to do that one. All right. So Basically, I'm, it's so that Lee and I work together, essentially. Yeah. So I, I pick up so I was saying to um, Lee and Tansy yesterday when we were walking through this session, it's really interesting because we do lots of events at the gallery and we do lots of different events. So sometimes we'll have full day workshops, sometimes we'll have after hours where we do workshops or we'll have you know, drinks and nibbles, and then we have sessions like this. And I think it's really interesting because we get different teachers to the different types of things. So it's really nice to have you here and you need to ask as many questions as you like. This is a really special session where there's no public. The gallery is yours. It's really lovely to have no one sort of interrupting your view. But if you have a question, please ask at any time. I'm going to hand over to you two. Fantastic. Thanks, Kylie. Well, we're just gonna we're just gonna tag team it today. Um, what we thought we'd do is talk to you a little bit about why the gallery's hung in the way it's hung. Um, give some little tidbits about different works of art as we go through, and really encourage you to ask us questions as well. If there's particular things that your students ask you all the time, other than what is the most valuable work in the collection, because I know you get that question a lot. But if there are other, you know, you know, pressing questions that you know your students are going to ask please do ask us because you know we're here to help and we're really keen to um, you know provide as much encouragement engagement for um, young people and students to come to the gallery and feel really comfortable in this space so I've only been here one year this week, <laughs> as LinkedIn told me yes, this happy week. Yes, happy anniversary, <laughs> yes, the courtesy like, of LinkedIn. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's the only way I knew. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but I am from Adelaide originally, so I have a, a long, I've been away for nearly 14 years and come back in the middle of COVID, but I have, a, I guess, a long relationship with this gallery. I was one of the students that completed the Masters in Art History, which was um, organised between the Art Gallery and the University of Adelaide. So this collection feels like my collection. It's always felt like my collection. And so it's really lovely to come home to this collection. But of course, I learnt about this gallery and this collection when it was a, quite a traditional chronological hang. And you would come in here and you would see the Renaissance paintings, which were beautiful little gems. Uh, and then you'd walk through and you'd, you'd see the history of art in a very kind of chronological Western art way. And so, of course, that's very different from how you see the collection today. All the works are still here, but they're here in different ways, amongst different friends, and we change them around quite a lot. So maybe Lee would like to, because you've been here since this massive change happened, maybe you'd like to talk about some of the thinking behind this change in, in display. Yeah, thanks, Tansy. Um, I think what is very interesting about the collection of the Art Gallery of South Australia is that it holds 46,000 works of art, and that spans about 4,000 years. So 
when you, in, in terms of thinking about how to, you know, every museum is challenged by how much and what they can show at any given time. So that means that you have to make certain decisions around how to how to how to tell some of those histories and some of those stories um, through visual culture and and art history. Now, I'm sure probably a lot of you, similarly to Tansy, have experience of the gallery at different phases, and you probably remember around 2012 when the Melrose Wing, which we're in, and this is the beginning of the Melrose Wing, uh, was was completely um, rehung uh, around thematic the idea of thematic displays. So each each gallery has a different, you know, a different, uh, I guess, armature or structure, uh, a thematic grouping that allows us to bring together works across different periods. Now, this um, in 2012, it was, you know, it was it was still considered, you know, something quite radical. And still, if we look at some of the other state collections around the country, there aren't that many that actually do thematic hangs like this. I remember when um, some of my background is that I studied art history in Queensland in Brisbane at the University of Queensland and then I went overseas in the year 2000 and started to work at the Peggy Guggenheim collection in Venice and so I lived in Venice um, for five years and um, and was in you know a, a museum house collection and then I ended up studying in London and working in London for five years and so spending you know ten years of my early career in in Europe. The year 2000 was also the year that the Tate Modern in London opened, and it was the same year that the Centre Pompidou in Paris and also the Met in New York all decided to shift some of their galleries, or the Tate opened its new location at Bankside in the big turbine hall, uh, and decided to hang its collection of modern and contemporary art using a thematic hang rather than a chronological hang. And, you know, it's interesting rereading some of the, the histories behind, you know, reading some of the... Uh, uh, sort of media at the time because it was considered very controversial and sort of, you know, bucked to trend. But I think it's very interesting that that also happened in the year 2000, really the beginning of the 21st century. Sometimes there's a sort of zeitgeist, but there are more reasons than that in terms of why it was important symbolically uh, to, to, to shift um, or to attempt the thematic hang. A lot of that is around ideas of the sort of monolithic canon, the idea that there is only a single art history, that there's only one way through. And so a chronological display assumes that there was only ever one way through and that there's, you know, one movement follows another. And then if you look at, um, as you move through a chronological collection, you also um, then uh, make assumptions that, you know, that, that this then in turn inspired that. And then looking ahead, then you can look back and see clear lines of connection when actually, you know, the way that art history works and the way that artists work is that often there are no discrete movements per se, but there are enduring themes that artists come back to over and over again. And in a way, the way that we are able to time travel through our collection of 4,000 years um, is also by doing a thematic rather than a chronological hang. So it actually gives us more opportunities to make different connections and have sort of multiple viewpoints. So when the Tate 
modern open, they used, you know, they used very, you know, now like I still think quite traditional ways of um, of grouping their collection around the still life, landscape, the nude or the body and portraiture, and um, and also history and memory and allegory. So those were the those were the ways that they grouped their modern and contemporary art collections. So that was roughly from the end of the 1800s through to the beginning of the 21st century, and they were able to you know bring a whole lot of different works together in similar ways that we do here. But actually, the gallery's collection um, and our thematic hang through Melrose is um, you know they're they're actually much more poetic and open-ended. Uh, armatures or you know um, groupings that we're, we're able to, to use um, and and that that allows us to have multiple ways of looking at enduring themes for artists and enduring concerns over time and so that's why we thought it would be a really great place to start here in um, gallery 12 which is grouped around radical classical or the idea of the relationship between the influence of um, classical greco-roman art um, and it's you know it's enduring um, the the impact of antiquity on on a lot of artists and how that we're able to carry that through from you know sixth century BC through to Rodin through to a work by Mark Quinn from you know ten years ago. So I think I might hand over to you in terms of to just you know pick up on some of those some of those links that you can you can create visually by just looking at the works that we have you know in terms of the interpretation of the body just by looking at the you know the Greeks statue of a young athlete, Diana the Huntress, and then looking at Rodin and Mark Quinn's um, sculpture of Bach. Absolutely. Thank you, Lee. Um, oh, so memory and allegory were one of the one of the thematic displays that the Tate Modern used to group together some of its collection of modern and contemporary art. So it was a diff you know, one of the thematics that they used. Uh, so I guess it's how artists are um, how artists are telling stories and how they're reflecting on the past, the role of memory and history, um, and um, I guess allegory as a way of um, storytelling through um, well through through stories and through narrative. Yeah, and yeah. often mythology and as mythology. well. So yeah. you know you've got wonderful Perseus and Andromeda up here by Burne Jones, um, which is a wonderful work in our collection. And obviously looking back at again historicism, classicism, and that wonderful sense of the narrative, which is so important. Uh, just picking up on some of the things you said before, Lee, I think one of the really um, important things about uh, a sort of changing the way we look at displaying works of art and the way in which we sort of mix um, periods is that it gives us the opportunity to tell more stories. And I think that's one of the things, when we think about the Western canon of art history, that is very much a white view of art history. It's a Western view of art history. And that in turn means it's an ex an exclusive or an exclusionary way of thinking about it because it assumes that there's one position that the world has been interpreted through or that artists have interpreted the world through their work with. That's right. And often, uh, as, as is the story of, you know, history books are written by the winners, as we say, the winners of wars, just as the great art is collected by the so-called great societies. But it often means that those other stories are sidelined or forgotten. We talk about things like 
feminising the museum, bringing in women's stories. We talk about decolonising the museum as well. So this is something that's really important to curators around the world, this idea of whose story are we telling? Whose story aren't we telling? People don't want to come into a building if they are not represented here. So it's really important that we try as much as we can to bring in a multiplicity of stories into our collection. Obviously that's difficult with some of this early work. It's very difficult to talk, tell stories of people of colour in a lot of this early British work. Um, but it is a case of, you know, perhaps if you can't visually tell those stories through the works of art, you can tell those stories through interpretation and juxtaposition of interesting parts of the collection as well. Obviously Buck makes a really good example of how you can bring other stories into the collection. Of course, queering the collection is something that's really important too. So. You know, it is something that we as curators probably 10 years ago wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't really have come across people's minds, but it's something that's really rapidly changing within the curatorial world and art history as well, so that we are able to be more inclusive with our stories and recognise about really how exclusive we have been in the past. So yes, as Lee said, I'll talk about some of the works of art as well. Now, um, those of you know, obviously I'm historical collection, so I do lots of deep dives into why we collected works, why we purchased works, how they got here. Uh, and um, it's quite interesting because of course there are, there are certain periods uh, in our history where there are very active moments of collecting. Uh, when we received the Eld bequest in 1899, huge impact. It was the largest bequest any gallery in Australia had. So the then curator H.P. Gill went to London and purchased a lot of contemporary British work. Uh, and you see a lot of that around the walls. Things like Circe in Videosa, which we'll go up and see a bit later. And lots of those wonderful sort of turn of the century British works. He also went to continental Europe and bought a few works there. Not as many as the British works. And it really gives you a sense of the beginning of this collection, it was very focused on Britain. That was, you know, the closest connection. They had advisors uh, who would tell them what works to buy uh, from different galleries over there. And so it's quite interesting. But we didn't actually start buying historical work until really about the 1940s and 50s. And there's this moment in our history which I think is quite fascinating where um, a certain amount of money had come in, uh, the Morgan Bequest Fund, and so a curator in London was tasked with building a collection of, of, stat of sculpture spanning the history of Western art. He was given something like 500 pounds to build this collection, which wasn't very much then and still isn't very much today. And so he was a curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and he essentially built up a collection of Western sculpture from Greco-Roman sculpture right through to what was then contemporary sculpture in the 1940s and early 50s. And it's quite interesting because it, it, some of these works are now lovely little gems, but at the time they was sort of the most cost-effective way of telling that history. And that, again, talks to that idea of you can buy a work from each period and represent a whole history of art, which, of course, we now know is not, in fact, the case. But it's quite an interesting part of our story. As Lee said, we have these kind of overarching ideas for each of the gallery spaces, and that does give us a lot of flexibility to play with those ideas, to play with what's represented, to bring in uh, different contexts, in looking, as Lee said, from the body beautiful, the ancient Greek kind of young athlete, 
through to Rodan, who um, Lee is certainly an expert on Rodan, having done that wonderful exhibition. Uh, and Rodan's sort of feeling that he was continuing that legacy of, um, you know, Western sculpture and the great masters of sculpture. And then, of course, through to Buck, um, again, wonderful sort of classical sculpture, but really challenging us in a contemporary way. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. I think um, you know these these sort of uh, evolving bodies, in a way, tell tell us uh, tell us a lot about the history of art and um, and different you know different um, moments in time, so socially as well, in terms of what each what each the context in which each artist was working. And so, someone like uh, Rodin, he you know he was working at the very end of the 19th century, and in a way, he was a sort of proto-modern artist. He really ushered in. Um, the sort of experimentation of, of modernism, um, even though we can see these as incredibly figurative works, when Rodin made these works and showed them in Paris, they were considered very gestural. It was, you you know, if you look at the the very composed uh, face of the um, of the Greek boy, of the young athlete here, um, you know, there, there was a, there was a particular way of of, of making, um, whether that was through stone carvings or through bronze cast. Um, ways of representing the figure. So when Rodin introduced these, you know, this is a figure, um, Pierre de Vissant, um, who's one of the figures of the Burgers of Calais, the, the, the sort of the famous burghers who, um, who uh, fought and protested for the keys of their city um, in, in Calais um, and were, were able to um, be saved just before they were about to be executed. But they captured these great moments of sort of anguish, that moment where just before they they thought they were going to the gallows, um, and so Rodin, you know, when when he showed these, they were they were considered, you know, extremely contemporary of, of, um, at the time. And I guess you know the, um, the contemporary work of today is really the sort of the the history of tomorrow in a way. So you know what what we see now, you know, is. Um, and that, that looks, they're so well known, they're so iconic, his works, but at the time, these oversized, very large hands were, you know, were, were, were considered really sort of ungainly, and, um, and then, you know, and then the furrowed brow of the, uh, of the form. But then if you look at his torso, it's still um, very much uh, influenced by Michelangelo, and Rodin, he would look to his forefathers, and even though Michelangelo had made works, you know, 400 years before him, he was still considered one of the greatest living artists and sculptors um, uh, of, of his time. And so Rodin traveled to Florence. He went to go and see the, um, the Sistine Chapel. Um, Adam, you know, who reaches over at the top, that, that figure is, you know, you see, you see that form come through Rodin's work over and over again. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, he was considered incredibly contemporary um, because the way that he would work is that um, he understood how to commodify and distribute his own work and his own market and so he was very ahead of the time because what he what he did was he would often reuse 
um, certain arms. And if you ever look at, even from some of the Rodin works that we have in the collection here, there's another one of the burghers of Calais that will, will go past. And he's used the same arm, but in a different position. So he would reuse all of his casts. And you know, when you, when you see them in the Rodin Museum, they're all just lined up. Um, and he would just reconfigure the body over and over again um, uh, to, to, to create these works. And then he also um, you know, was able to make works that could be made in multiple multiple copies. He wanted his work to be in every museum in the world, and actually, he didn't. He's not far off it, to be honest. So you know, he he was quite um, he was quite entrepreneurial in in that sense, but um, but deeply indebted to the history of classicism and a great collector of antiquities, and he studied them rigorously to be able to you know, as you say, you've got to know the rules to break them. And he you know he was a classically trained sculptor who then you know created a whole visual vocabulary of his own, of his own visual or sculptural language, let's say. And then to um, Buck by Mark Quinn. And, you know, um, it's great just even having these sight lines where you can put these, these works together, which you couldn't in a chronological display. You couldn't show a work that was made in the, um, you know, in the late 1800s um, to, and, and a work that was made in about 2010. Um, so, you know, so really you're spanning a century. So you're able to sort of see a century of evolution and artistic practice by using these sort of thematic displays. But Mark Quinn is one of the YBAs, which is the young British artists. Not so young anymore. Not so young. No, no, they're, no, they're not anymore. But um, they were, and a lot of them had gone to Goldsmiths Academy in London. And, uh, and they were very famous for a show that Charles Saatchi uh, brought together called Sensation, um, which was also in 2000. So quite a lot of things were all happening around the same time um, in terms of international, you know, global trends. And um, and Mark Quinn, he was he's always been interested in portraiture. He's made a lot of um, marble works as well. And his work was actually he created a frozen. He he wanted to create a self-portrait, and he did so by freezing gallons of his own blood in a cast of his own head. And that was one of the very one of the many controversial works um, alongside Jake and Dinos Chapman that will come to Tracy Emin, her un, her her unmade bed and things like that. But you know it's interesting that at different points. Mark Quinn has always been interested in other people's stories, in, in otherness, in other bodies as well. He did a series of marble um, works for the, the fourth plinth in London as well, where um, he represented um, uh, disabled Olympian athletes um, and, uh, and, and, you know, had, had them carved in, um, in, in marble. And then, you know, Buck, this incredible, um, you know, transgender figure, uh, you know, in this really sort of heroic, you know, um, position as well. And, you know, one of the first figures that we come to in the gallery, which, you know, the history of collecting and curating, they are, there are power plays at work, I guess, in terms of what goes where and how, and those, and how those decisions are made. And so, you know, it, it gives us a way to, to tell, you know, stories that have historically been othered or people that have been othered in the past and and you know allows them to allows us to bring them into you know at the forefront of you know contemporary narratives and storytelling and i think for us as well as curators today we have to keep thinking about what we're doing 
who's, who are we representing? And to challenge ourselves as well, to make sure that we break those moulds of, of tradition within galleries. Not to say that the art we're showing isn't wonderful, of course it is, but we need to be inclusive as well. So, you know, it does, sometimes works of art challenge us too. Um, sometimes putting different things next to each other can be extremely challenging, but that's part of our job too, is to be challenged and to push ourselves to consider other things as well. I did just want to say one more thing before we head, because we'll keep moving. Um, one thing I think is always really interesting um, to mention to students is, of course, we look at Greco-Roman sculpture as this beautiful, elegant, white marble. But of course, most of these works would have been painted. And I don't know if you've seen, but the, um, the British Museum have done uh, painted, like a, a, a digitally painted version of the Elgin marbles. And so it's really interesting to see just how gaudy they were compared to our notion of what classicism is, this wonderful paired back, um, very elegant, white. You think about um, the Georgian period in history where you know, uh, women were wearing these wonderful Grecian-inspired gowns that were white muslin, but of course this is not what was actually happening. So it's a misinterpreted view of, of art history. And so we need to, there's always more to learn. You know, we've got 500 plus year old paintings that we're continually learning about as well. So it's really important that we don't stop scholarship and we continue to, to delve into these stories and, and keep, keep researching. It keeps us excited as well. So shall we head into Gallery 13? So this is our um, being human space. And um, uh, one of the things I noticed when I first started here was there were very few uh, women represented in this space. I mean, there were portraits of women, but very few works by women. And that is something, again, you know, the idea of our collections being, uh, you know, the, the Western art canon, and it's also a very male-dominated story. So that's something that we're very aware, well aware of with our collection too. So slowly we've been, um, you know, changing the display, and that's one of the great things that we get to do here is change over, um, move things around as much as we can, and have fun playing with the space. So essentially, again, this is one of those big ideas, being human. You could pretty much encapsulate anything in the idea of being human. Uh, but we've got some big stories relating to, of course, course, motherhood, families, uh, everyday life, portraiture, this wonderful wall of, of portraits over a sort of 500 year period, and then into our more kind of incredible abstract and expressionist works as well. And I'm sure many of you came to the talk with um, Rebecca and Lisa uh, a few weeks, well, a month ago, is it? A few months ago? I don't remember. A couple of months. Last, Last term. Year. Work in terms, all right. <laughs> Uh, and I know that Rebecca would have talked to you about um, our wonderful Morris collection and also the incredible um, Bloomsbury group and Amiga workshops, which are sort of very closely related to that as well. And just sort of moving on from that idea of collecting, one of the things we do here in terms of our collection is we are obviously continually acquiring work for the collection uh, through different means, through purchase, through gifts um, and various other sort of cultural gifts program 
and all of those sorts of things. But we do have a very stringent um, acquisition strategy. So we, of course, don't accept everything. Things have to have a really strong resonance with our collection, working with what we have or perhaps what we want. Uh, on our strategy, we include um, you know, key focal points that we want to develop within the collection. And that's a really strong, that's obviously a, not a public document, that's a, an internal document, but it's something that we work very closely with. And our um, board expects a very stringent approach to acquisitions as well. As Lee said, we've got 46,000 works in the collection, uh, one of the largest collections in Australia. And um, in fact, I think the Art Gallery of New South Wales is about half that size. So uh, it is a very extensive collection. But of course, like all galleries, most of it is in storage. So we do have to be careful about what we acquire and how we store it and how we propose to display it in the future. Uh, but that said, there are some really key parts of our collection that we look at uh, and look at expanding and telling those stories. Rebecca told you about the Morris story, which of course is a really, really important story for South Australia. And of course, we've got the Bloomsbury Group and Amiga story, which is another wonderful story in our collection. And these are what gives us a sort of point of difference. And we did talk before about the idea of an encyclopedic collection. Our collection is certainly not an encyclopedic collection. Our collection is very much about the collecting fashions of the late 19th century, the various collectors uh, that helped develop the collection, uh, and of course, Today, we're, we're sort of working with what we've got with the collection and building upon that and further developing it to continue to tell these stories. But we're not suddenly going to start collecting one of each artwork from each period because that's, that's not an effective tool for us. So with something like the Bloomsbury Group, we, we just recently acquired that beautiful Vanessa Bell in the centre. Should we go over there? We can go over yeah. there and have a look. So this beautiful Vanessa Bell, uh, which we just acquired, my first acquisition for the collection, I can proud to say. Um, and it's a fabulous work. And we do have a number of works by Bell in our collection, including this wonderful bedroom Gordon Square here, uh, Mount Oliveto, and one other smaller work in the collection as well. And the reason that looking at uh, acquiring a work like this, this tells another aspect of Bell's Earth. So it really gives us the opportunity to, to tell the best story about Vanessa Bell. Um, I think we, we certainly have the best Bloomsbury collection in Australia, if not outside the UK. It's one of the, the strongest parts of our collection, the Bloomsbury Group and the Amiga Workshops. And so I don't know if you've had a chance, but there's a um, on ABC iView, there's a lovely three-part series about the Bloomsbury Group, if you're interested in a little bit of salacious gossip, because there's lots of great stories with the Bloomsbury Group. It is. It's good. It's it's, it's Life really in good. <laughs> Life in Squares on ABC yep, iView. That's right, Life in Squares. Highly recommend so, um, <laughs> And of course, um, Vanessa Bell's sister was the very famous author, Virginia Woolf. Uh, and so there's this wonderful sort of cohort of artistic endeavour happening. Uh, and it's, it's such a great story. But of course, you've got this incredible experience of this artistic output. And that's such a great part of our collection here and something we like to celebrate as well. So it's quite a canny part of our collection too, because no one else in Australia represents that. This fabulous Lucian Freud is another great example of really clever collecting. Uh, this work was acquired from Lucian Freud's very first exhibition. Um, and you know, for us, that is astounding. 
uh, the, you know, the first work to come into an Australian collection. We certainly couldn't, would not have the capacity to buy a Lucian Freud today. Uh, but it is a wonderful work and certainly a work that stays out on display. But interestingly enough, um, over the years when um, Freud was still alive, obviously curators communicating with him and he said, oh, I don't like the painting very much. And as we know, artists are very critical of their own work, but we love it and we think it's fabulous. So we're very happy to have this gorgeous Lucian Freud from the very beginning of his career. So very sort of forward thinking acquisition for the collection. So I guess the um, elephant in the room is actually a horse in the room. <laughs> and every, <laughs> every question I get from a lot of um, our audience is, I don't understand the horse. What's the horse about? And Lee said, oh, I thought I'd talked about it too much already. But I think that it's always really good to refresh us about what Belinda's work is about. I learned a lot when I was doing some research into it. I found it incredibly challenging, but I find it an incredibly powerful work of art too. So, you know, I think it's really great to remind us about why it's here and what it's about. Yeah, I think um, it's it's interesting just looking at even how the collection has, or this display has 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 changed even over the last couple of years. But um, at its um, at its centre is the uh, work made in 2011 by the Belgian artist Belinda de Broekje called "We Are All Flesh," and in a way the 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 hang was curated um, around it, which is always interesting given that it is you know. A, an incredible uh, sort of composite piece of taxidermy elements of two two horses that have been fused in this quite extraordinary equestrian sculpture in a way, but also, you know, eschewing any type of traditional plinth. It's it's hung up on a on a huge industrial pole, um, almost, uh, you know, in, in some ways it, um, it might reference the crucifix in a way, and in other cases it looks like it's um, hanging from a butcher's hook. Belinda de Brookia's father was a butcher, um, and uh, the way she started working with horses was when she was was invited by the Flanders Museum, Flanders Fields Museum, to do a commission to make a new work um, in response to the archives and the photographic archives in Flanders. Um, um, obviously, you know the the Battle of Flanders being incredibly famous and huge lives lost. Um, there and what she found when she thought that she would be making a different sculpture, but in the end she was, she she was just so um, uh, I guess shocked by the photographs of the deceased horses all through the streets of um, uh, of um, you know in in uh, Flanders. Is it um, the the actual Ypres? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or as those in the in the. <laughs> In the no, call it wipers, wipers or Ypres, Yeah, yeah. Now that, through that's the streets just people of, who work in, you know, yeah. RSL Museum call yeah. it wipers. Yeah, good, good. But um, these these incredible um, images of horses strewn throughout the the streets, and and that's when she decided that she wanted to make a monument to those animals' lives that are lost. Um, and the way that she's always done it, and intent is a very important thing, you know, in terms of when, particularly with a work like this, which is you know, 
always controversial. Like um, I've been here five years, and it has now been next year. It will be up. It will have had a decade on display, and every week I still have to respond. Well, I still respond to letters from the public, either um, asking about it, and it and there it, it's a work that divides opinion. Often great works do divide opinion, and some are like, oh, it's my it's my favourite work. I you know I feel you know what it brings out in me is you know different levels of human empathy um, by by looking at you know by looking at this this work, and then of course in other cases there is outrage because in a lot of the time you know it's it's quite confronting there's no sort of way around it and so it can be um, quite you know quite uh, you know we, we we try and tell parents with young children before they come in you know just just what to expect and that in some cases they might want to go around it and we have a leaflet at the front when people are coming through that way and you know and our guards you know so so over the years we've you know we've we, we've tried to create different ways and have a, an expanded label that explains that you know no horses were harmed in the making of this work which the the ethics around the making of an artwork is incredibly important to, to us um, as you know as the gallery and as a collecting institution but um, but obviously you know in a much in a much broader sense how how was this work made and you know what was the what was the intent of the artist so I think when you realize that it's in fact a memorial um, in in some respects um, is one thing, um, a very contemporary monumental memorial, um, but in other ways, and it is really, um, you know, something that, that is responding to um, the history of war, um, but it's also, um, yeah, but I, th I think it's, uh, you know, it, there's, there's a huge amount of pathos to it. And the way that she made it was in great consultation with the University of Ghent, with their veterinary science um, uh, uh, department, and they would come to her when, um, you know, horses had deceased and they were ha given over to science. And then um, she was able to choose which horses she would work with, and then she would work together with, with that department and, um, and tax and how she'd create it is, you know, using these sort of armatures or these sort of in, internal sort of structures, and then she would she would sort of you know wrap the the, the horse hide over them. But she chose in. You know, I remember the very first time I saw a Belinda de Brucchia work, and it was one of the first early horses that she did, was like 2003 in Venice. You walked into this room, and it was this incredibly beautiful animal with its head craned in an impossible angle, and um, on this very sterile, looked very scientific um, table. And it was so astonishing that it sort of gave you goosebumps in a way, but also was, you know, just such a powerful image that you can never unsee, which I think is sort of what what happens with this work as well. But um, she, in some of the interviews I've read with her, she said that um, she, she, she chose to remove, and for many of them, they don't feature a face or they don't feature, um, you know, the, it's sort of absorbed, you know, in the way that she's created it. So any of those... Um, Oh, I guess, I, I guess some of the, um, yeah, I guess some of the more emotive elements by not having a face was a very st specific way of, you know, um, of, uh, of I guess, 
um, manipulating the, the, the drama, but perhaps not. You know, it seems very extreme as it is, but would be even more extreme if perhaps, you know, there was also um, the, the face of those, of those horses as well. So, um, yeah, still, you know, probably a good one to open up the floor to if there's any questions or, you know, other ways that we can, you know, help talk about it because... You know, I've, I've, it's been one of the more interesting ones whenever you give a tour that even after all of these years, I'm so amazed at the array of responses. And, you know, one of the most beautiful responses I had was from a you know, first year uni student. And, and they were like, oh, you know, it's actually sometimes with animals that we're at our most human or our most humane. And, um, and actually, you know, our care of animals is often sometimes where we express our humanity most. And, um, and I, I really sort of like you know, I think that's a very interesting way to think about a work like this. Um, and I but, think that's yeah. what Belinda's trying to get us to do as well. Because I think, you know, we have a difficult relationship with animals because at one moment horses, they're our friends, we ride them, they're our companions. But on the other side, we have the racing industry and we have the, the death of horses after that industry. And, and we, we know what that's like here. The same with, you know, things like greyhounds and, and animals that we eat as well. So it is, it's a difficult um, relationship, but it's a relationship that we shouldn't deny. Because I think if we forget about the different animals and the different relationships, then we're just denying that. And I think, you know, that's, that's a really interesting conversation because Belinda is, is obviously pointing out the, a really interest in the treatment of animals. That's something that she's very interested in. And I think it's something that we, you know, it can bring out the best in people, but it can also bring out the worst in people too. So I think, you know, she's, she's highlighting that side of, of it as well. Yeah, and I guess in terms of the histories around or the conversations around art within this space, you know, we are, you know, talking about thematic hangs. We've come from looking at radical classical, you know, radical interpretations over time of the body, of the nude, of the nude form, um, and, uh, and architecture in some ways in the gallery we've just moved from. And then in here, this um, space is uh, looking at artists' enduring interests around the human condition. And... Um, um, and so a lot of the, a lot of, you know, and, and so that goes through, you know, the incredible display of, um, of regal or naval or military portraits that line the, 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 um, the, the back wall over there through to, um, through to, you know, great moments by incredible artists like Francis Bacon, you know, known for his, his paintings of, you know, quite contorted, emotive um, faces and figures through to Frank Auerbach, a much, you know, little bit younger than Francis Bacon and um, you know in a way there is there is a sort of story of, of um, modern British um, post you know post-war painting um, and and work here around here um, and because we have such strong holdings of, of British work um, it, it allows us to you know go deep in certain aspects and then and then create conversations and multiple possibilities and different readings but you know with that in mind um, I do like that over time we do have a major female artist um, at the centre of this room and everything orbits around it and you know with the work of quite a number of Vanessa Bell works here but then also the incredible Mary Beale works that, um, that Tansy also um, has in her collection and recently put on display one of the possibly the first professional female artist certainly in Britain mm. um, and so you know 
it's interesting that even in these few years, there's already different stories, different representation, and it's important that we're always holding ourselves to account in terms of what we're collecting, what is going on display, and you know who it represents, and and to try and you know to try and open that up, and we're you know we'll still ha we'll always have different ways of doing that, and probably the Chihari Shiota is an interesting one to to think about as an intervention within a um, within these sort of historic galleries, but. You tell some really great stories about Mary Beale, so I think since that's quite new, it would be really great if um, if you could tell the, the group a little bit more about those wonderful these, these Mary Beals. These are two new acquisitions. So uh, the two works down the bottom there, the beautiful penitent Magdalene and Head of a Boy. As Lee said, Mary, Mag uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary Beale was really um, Britain's first professional artist, female artist. Uh, and uh, we do have another Mary Bill in the collection up in Gallery 15, which you can have a look at later. Uh, these works have only recently been um, reattributed to Mary Bill uh, and have been uh, certainly identified by Tabitha Barber, who's the Bill expert who works at the Tate in London. Uh, of course, this is a period when most artists didn't sign their works, uh, and so it's often very difficult to find any kind of information. But one, what was really wonderful about Mary Beale is that she had this incredible supportive husband, which is sort of like completely different from the, everyone else in society at that time. And so um, he didn't have a job. So she became the professional artist that supported the family, and he kept these incredible almanacs every year and detailed every single painting that she made, all of the commissions that she did throughout her career. Unfortunately, of the um, 20 or something almanacs that were completed, only two remain. They've been lost over time. Maybe one day they'll be found in a collection somewhere in some historic house in the UK or something. But we do know that this work, The Penitent Magdalene, is actually mentioned in, in one of the extant um, almanacs. And so we can absolutely prove without a doubt that is in fact Mary Bill's work. And it's of course very typical of the pose of Magdalene, you know, she's, she was of course a prostitute and then converted um, to become one of Jesus' great followers. She's got her little an, an anointing jar there for anointing the feet of Jesus. And she's got that beautiful, um, you know, penitent face of Magdalene, uh, seeing the light of Christianity. Um, the, the woman that actually posed, well, she was a girl, she would have only been 14, who posed for this um, painting uh, was um, Mole Trio, and she um, sadly passed away at a young age, but Mary Bill's husband, Charles Bill, is credited with writing the epitaph on her um, gravestone in London, which is quite lovely. And we have this beautiful study here, which is possibly of Mary Bill's son, one of her two sons, who eventually ended up joining her in, in their studio. And um, if you look at the other work up in 15, there's a, a sort of a fake frame or a cartouche painted around the edge of the painting, and, and that's likely done by uh, one of her sons who joined her in the studio. Uh, but it's really lovely to have um, what is essentially a study. It's a figure study. You've got this beautiful sort of complete, likely a commission work, and then this beautiful experimentation piece. And uh, because, of course, canvases were very expensive, Mary Beale painted on lots of different media, um, you know, things like hessian sacks and uh, paper that she found. This one's actually on paper laid onto canvas. And so you've got a whole range of different media that she used. 
But Charles Bill became her, essentially her, her husband became her studio assistant and a colourman in his own right. And he mixed a lot of her colours. Of course, this is a period when no such thing as paint in tubes was all beautiful, um, <laughs> wonderful things like lapis lazuli and other things mixed into oil. And so he would um, develop these wonderful colours. So she became such a great colourist because she was working closely with her husband on developing this wonderful range of colours, particularly for the skin tones. And you can see that wonderful shading across those works as well. Uh, she was working at the same time as Sir Peter Lely. Um, we do have a Lely work in our collection, but it's not currently on display. Uh, but what's interesting is that, you know, she was she was sort of the second great portraitist of the time. Lely charged £20 per portrait, and she was much cheaper at £5. So she got a lot of commissions that way, which is quite a nice story in the end. Now, I think, should we have a look at little Henry, mm. my mate Henry, yes. yeah. uh, because we're going to remind you to look at something a bit later. So there aren't very many Tudor portraits in Australia. Uh, I think there are possibly two at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and a few in some private collections. So this work, Portrait of Henry VIII, uh, I think you might have heard of him, could be wrong. Um, is actually a really significant work in our collection. Uh, through analysis of the wood, we know it was completed in his lifetime, which is quite unusual because a lot of the portraits were posthumous. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've had different exhibitions, I've had a lot of students ask me, or even adults as well, what does after mean? What does it mean when a painting is after someone? So this is after Hans Holbein. You've noticed that after is very small. Uh, does it mean it's a copy? Because that's what I get a lot of questions. It does mean it's a copy, but it's a very good copy and the original is lost. So this painting is actually a version of a very famous work that was made for the Banqueting Hall in London at Whitehall Palace, which burnt down. So it was a large full-scale mural on the wall somewhere, we don't even know exactly where, in, sorry, not in the Banqueting Hall, that's the only bit that survives, it must have been in the private chambers of Whitehall, which was the largest palace, and that was Henry's um, primary palace in London, and of course, um, wonderful, wonderful uh, Hampton Court Palace, one of my favourite places outside London. So this painting originally made by Hans Holbein and then copied by studio assistants and others working at the time. We don't know who copied it, we don't know who made this version, but Holbein's original version has been lost. But we do know that it did exist because the cartoons, the paper cartoons for that mural, which were chalk um, with little holes pressed into the paper to make the chalk outlines on the wall, still exists in the National Portrait Gallery's collection in London, which is pretty special. But what's amazing about this work is that this has become to represent the image of Henry VIII. When we think of Henry VIII, this is what we think of. So this Hans Holbein, he was commissioned by Henry VIII to create a monumental portrait of the king. He's strong, he's robust. Of course, we think of um, Henry VIII as being not very attractive, very overweight, pussy sore on his leg, a little bit crazy. But of course, he was a very 
uh, attractive young virile man. He was very tall. He was over six foot. Um, but eventually, he got very wide as well. Uh, if you've ever seen his armour, <laughs> um, which is at Hampton Court Palace, you'll know what I'm talking about. But of course, he had a terrible um, jousting accident and he was knocked out for several hours. And it's thought today that perhaps he suffered an acquired brain injury. And it was after that moment, that was when he was married to Catherine of Aragon, and it was after that moment that this kind of madness and all the wives set in. And he also, as a result, had a, had a, had a weeping sore on his leg that never, ever healed. And of course, they used things like leeches and horrible things like that. Um, and so he had this pus, pussy sore on his leg for the rest of his life. And we know what it's like when you're in pain. You're very grumpy, aren't you? And he was particularly grumpy, but he was grumpy with a very powerful grumpy. Uh, but it's quite interesting to sort of think about those backstories and such a major work in our collection. Now, I did want to point out to you the incredible detailing of the costume that he's wearing, because we're going to point out something else a little bit later. You'll notice this wonderful, he's got a beautiful silk brocade doublet with these little puffs of his undershirt pulled through and this wonderful slashing. And you'll notice that across some of the other portraits as well, which is, you know, a very complex technique, very expensive to make. There's, yes, the, the Duke of Buckingham looks very fancy up there as well. And one thing I always like to point out to people is that whenever you see a black gem in a painting, that's not onyx or something like that, that's a diamond. Because they didn't want diamonds for their sparkly brilliant cut. They didn't cut them in that way, of course, that, that's a modern way of cutting a diamond. They actually backed their diamonds with black foil because they were interested in the luster, not the sparkle. All those lovely black gems are diamonds. And each time that they would get dressed, they would have someone sew those jewels onto their clothes. So you see those wonderful portraits of Elizabeth I. It took her hours to get dressed because every single one of those jewels was sewn onto her clothes. So it's quite amazing, this, this notion of the court. And fashion and textiles is a great way of interpreting paintings. If you don't know much about a painting, you can look at it and think, okay, well, George III over here is wearing this coat that's made of ermine, so that's mink. And of course, unfortunately, at the moment, we think of minks because they all got COVID and they all had to be killed in Denmark, but we won't talk about that right now. Every little black spot is a tail. That's how many animals went into that coat. Of course, the uh, wealthy aristocracy who weren't quite as wealthy as George III, they, they used rabbit fur and dyed it and put a little black. But that's, that shows you how many of those minks were killed to make that coronation robe. And the sheer cost, that, that suit was cloth of gold woven with real gold thread. It doesn't actually exist anymore, but the coronation robes are in Madame Tussauds in London, if you're interested. <laughs> um, but you know, all these different things that you can interpret from portraiture and from the status of people represented in paintings is really interesting too. So I think Lee's going to take us up and talk to us about, as my son calls it, the laser room, <laughs> otherwise known as the wonderful Chiharu Shiota. Early, so it's early 20th century, Marie Laurencin, French painter. And you'll notice there are two contrasting works, the only two women painters on the wall, Grace Cossington-Smith, who you would know, an Australian painter, and Marie Laurencin. And this is, this is really about sort of challenging that idea and challenging the notion of the male gaze versus the female gaze as well. And I think that's one of the things that's very interesting, how we look at um, people through different eyes. And obviously they're much more contemporary works, but it is a 
that tradition, that ongoing fascination with portraiture, but also how that has changed over time too. It's yeah, beautiful work. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a very interesting conversation between power versus vulnerability in this space, which is done very purposefully with this display. But then if you look at the selection of sculptures, starting obviously with the Belinda de Brookier, which is really a portrait of um, vulnerability, to Rodin's work, The Inner Voice, which is one of the first ever fragmented forms, you know, in mm. terms of modern sculpture, where he's left the arm off and he's got this incredibly sort of contorted almost an impossible position for for that for that work there through to Sarah Lucas another one of um, which is considered one of the YBAs young British artists who would use um, women's stockings and filling them with with sort of cotton to create her her, her sort of lumpen you know forms um, and then you know then after 20 years then started working in polished bronze because they survive um, whereas you know a lot of a lot of uh, lumpy lumpy textiles um, are quite hard to conserve in uh, for, for anyone so um, you know but but still the the figure which is crouching which is you know holding holding its um, its its you know its head in, on its knees to then a work by Anthony Gormley um, a British artist which is called clutch and this work could only be made um, through the use of a computer and um, and a, a sort of you know being able to sort of laser laser cut some of this um, aluminium and also to be able to to weight um, but also cantilever a form like that so in the base of this is a whole set of weights and the whole thing uh, had to be created so that it doesn't tip over so it's in, it's basically you know locked to the ground because the whole the form is so heavy that it would you know and that it would um, be too precarious. So ideas of precarity, vulnerability, and the representation of the body over time, and the different ways that the nude or the you know um, portrait or the body is represented, are sort of played out through the paintings and the the sculptures in in the room. Yeah. Great. My, my son calls that one the Minecraft sculpture. <laughs> so I'm sure you can connect with some boys with that. Or girls. There are a lot of girls that love Minecraft too. <laughs> I know Tansy and I were saying that it's so different at night because all of these galleries, um, they do have natural light that, that spills through. So that in some cases where we have we have a lot of light um, in in this gallery for you know to be able to light this work. So you know it's just rows and rows of light. But um, but some of the other other spaces that we're in, they become really quite dark because um, yeah because of you know you don't get these searing streams of sunlight through the gallery at different times of the day, which is which is also very beautiful. But um, but it feels feels quite different in the gallery at night as a result or after sunset. So um, is this, I imagine this, you know, I'm quite excited. I think it's coming up to the work's third anniversary next, yes, in, in, in August this year. So, which is, you know, which is very exciting that it's been here for this long. But, you know, putting a work like this in the middle of um, the permanent galleries was, you know, uh, yeah, was, was, was quite a process. Um, and it's also very interesting that it is Chiharu Shiota, the work is called Absence Embodied, and it was created for the gallery. Um, a few, when um, Nick Mitsevich, um, uh, was the director here? We were both in Venice, and um, and we'd seen her uh, incredible work, Key in Hand, which was a Venetian boat heaving with keys, hanging off red strings, and this incredible installation. And you know, she was. It was apparently one of. It was the most. Um, 
recirculated image um, on uh, on in, on Instagram that that year. So it was it's very interesting in terms of the distribution, the circulation of images, and and what people are drawn to and things like that. But in terms of contemporary art, you know, Chiharu had been building up this incredible career as a major international artist, and we see these different shifts over time where you know. Um, works just get bigger and bigger. So in my collecting area, I have all the largest footprint of anything. The volumetrics of my collection are quite extraordinary. But then also sometimes the smallest collection because we just receive, you know, thumb drives or digital files, which are, you know, basically have no physical presence at all, entirely digital things. So it's, um, it's very interesting. But, you know, there was a, there was a shift in the, in the 90s, um, uh, which was, you know, towards these architectural whole room installations. Sometimes they use a word called gesumpt Kunstwerk, which comes from a Wagnerian term, which means a total work of art. So the idea of creating a work that is, you know, that engages with the senses, but also takes over the entire, um, the, the, the entire architecture, it creates a total mise-en-scene. So, um, you know, Chiharu was working up to her own sort of visual language and creating these works. She did spend some time in Australia in 93, 94, when she did an exchange at ANU in Canberra. So her relationship to Australia was very real and it also marked a moment where she left her um, training as a painter. She'd studied paint, um, so painting, and I don't know, I often feel that with some of the, you know, I don't know, compositionally or, you know, chromatically, I feel that sometimes that you can tell she was once a painter with the, with this installation, the sort of dynamism of it, the gestural quality of it, even though it is completely static. Um, and so she, you know, she had spent time in, in Australia and it meant, that, and that was when she had she was doing a lot of performance and she uh, did this incredible um, performance called Becoming Painting where she painted her whole self. She covered, doused herself in red house paint um, which was, it's just quite toxic and um, it wasn't the water-based stuff, you know. So, and she, she said, you know, her partner at the time had to help her cut her hair off because it had burnt right through to her scalp and um, yeah so in this process she wore a canvas and sort of sandwiched herself between the sort of canvas and sort of wanted to become a painting in order for her to reject painting and she did it through a durational you know quite intense existential performance um, and then then while she was in Canberra, she started her very first um, string works. Um, and she started with, you know, with simple acorns as nodules and some, you know, just not, um, you know, using those and using a wall um, and using some black thread to connect the dots. So that was, that was one of her first string works. And then over time, she found that she was traveling a lot and she felt sort of dislocated and she found that, um, or has felt sort of displaced a lot of the time. So she found that binding things up in string Sometimes her belongings, her suitcases, um, often you'll find, you know, clothes and chairs and things used in her work or beds um, would recur and be surrounded or swathed in, in string. And then gradually she moved up into these installations that you could actually walk through and inhabit. So it was quite a... Quite a profound project working on something like this where we brought Chiharu over to Australia and um, and we had to choose a well, figure out how we were going to install the only permanent work of its kind. Most of the time when she does these installations they're up for a, a group show a big biennial or a big solo exhibition and they're up for three months and then they're literally just chopped down 
you know, and it is a huge amount of work. We were in here for a month, so it was the whole walls had to be reskinned and chemically bolted to be able to deal with the weight, which is about um, probably about seven ton of total weight pulling on the walls through the tensile wires that run all along the top to create the sort of the the, um, the tension so that then she could work out and down. And also we had to have walls that um, that were you know made of made of gyp rock. So so that we could also um, staple directly into the wall. So um, yeah, there was quite there was quite a lot of. There's also there's often a lot of production in contemporary artworks. Uh, so they they you know they they take a lot of engineering, a lot of architecture, a lot of design, and a lot of planning to, to make these works. So um, yeah, but uh, she chose red. Red, the red string of fate is um, something. Uh, a term in sort of Japanese folklore, which imagines that we're each connected by um, by by a finger to each other in a way, and at some point the tension, you know, the it's a the, the red string is a metaphor for our relationships. At some point, um, there's there's tension. At other points, um, it's severed, and um, at other points we're you know connected um, harmoniously to other people so so she she often uses that when she's when she wants to create these work it also connects to blood and to the body um, and you know for this work she it was only later I remember I'd visited her in Berlin and we were talking through what the installation was going to be how it was going to take form it was responding to the collection it's site specific it's made from here for here and it couldn't replicate anything else that she'd done anywhere else and um, but she didn't tell us until later that um, that at the time she was going through a second bout of chemotherapy and so her her sense of herself and her body going through the hospital system was something she was thinking about a lot and it's very interesting that this space becomes quite a meditative space which you can feel it as you move through like there is actually a sort of the register changes like the feeling changes like people immediately go quiet in here when they come up the stairs it's like this sort of sense of it it, it the the atmosphere changes it's quite a phenomenological encounter that she's created and often people like you know meditating or sitting or you know spending time here um, just you know alone with with the work even though we don't explain a lot of that story because it's something that she has written about but but you know she didn't want it to be over read or, or always read through 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 that personal history but you know it's the first time she'd ever cast her own um, body and so the bronze elements are hers and the plaster elements are her daughter's and so she was you know thinking about that relationship between mother and child um, you know, in a way, it's a contemporary Madonna work. <laughs> I don't know, but um, but you know, there's one work which anchors everything here, which are three hands. It's her husband, her herself, and their daughter's hand, all sort of entwined, and um, and the work sort of began with with that piece, and then she brought in all of these other elements. Also, she found that throughout the collection there were a lot of bodies and a lot of um, figuration and, and, uh, and things. So that's, that's how she, she wanted to literally tie everything together um, here in this, in this space. So it's also interesting that it's a Japanese female artist who is, you know, basically it's an intervention within our otherwise, um, you know, otherwise, uh, I guess, well, within the collection, so very European-based collection. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's nice to challenge that and also look at the sort of, you know, what's happening in contemporary art. How long do you think this work will last? Well, it's already lasted 
very well. It's synthetic red wool, and that was a particular decision. You know, we cloud mapped it um, on a computer program so that if we ever moved it or if we ever got a bigger gallery, fingers crossed, one day, um, we will, um, you know, we can remake it. But with, um, you know, at a certain point, we will have to you know, for various reasons. Um, mainly, Chihari said once it once it doesn't hold its tension, or if it gets like we we clean it, we have little vacuums, and you know, there's. But it it's actually, you know, we thought it would be way dustier by now, and it's actually quite incredible that, you know, that actually it doesn't hold the dust because it's a synthetic wool. So you know, those things are really interesting. A lot of us, she didn't know. There's never been a work that she's had as up as long as this. So it's it was an interesting also case study for us with our conservators as well because a lot of conservators were involved in it as well as computers which it seems ironic for such a handmade work how do you make something like this again so we we would we stockpiled the red wool so we have multiple boxes so that of this particular brand and this style so in case it goes out of um, in case it's out of production and yeah and and basically according to our agreement for the work, um, we can expand it to another, if it could be expanded to a room twice the size, 50%, um, but only 10% smaller would be acceptable. So if we were looking at a different space, those were some of the parameters that she set around what it could expand or contract to. Uh, but, you know, she or someone representing her studio when, um, or, you know, if or when she's, when she's no longer alive would, would come and, um, and install it. Because when she came over, she brought two of her assistants who've worked with her for one of them for over 10 years and it was it's very interesting that there is still a signature it is still a drawing in space and a lot of the techniques of drawing and the way that you you have artists have a signature drawing style comes out in that because when some of the rest of us were trying to do the stapling and she would be like not so great <laughs> she's like, she's like mm, doesn't look right and then she'd have to go over and hide all of our bad you know <laughs> like drawing with the string so you know it's it's you know it's a, it's a very interesting work because of all the questions that it asks of of us as well you know and you know it also displaces a huge amount of work in the collection so you know it is it is something that is is always going to be ephemeral at some point we will have to um, take it down yeah yeah with one work yeah change the rhythm yeah yeah Mm. Mm. And you have that vaulted feeling, like coming into a chapel, you know. So the, the, you know, some of those things were very specific around which room we used and how and what, and it, and it is like it is actually a change of rhythm. And a lot of those things are curatorial design um, strategies that that you use, spatial um, strategies and things like that. But um, but it is that sense of coming into a sort of vaulted space, which even subliminally makes you feel like you're in some sort of not not necessarily a church, but perhaps a, a temple or perhaps some type of sanctuary or some type of other space so it, it definitely you know has a spiritual register which is subliminal and not you know not specific to any any type of religion so to speak yeah cool now just back to what Lee said before we do have a very glamorous life here we do get to dust works of art 
So uh, we do we do go around and do that. So it is a, it is a consideration mm. for curators um, yeah. because obviously it's it's not a job we can ask cleaners to do. We work with our conservators, but you know once a, one day a week we take it in turns and we go around and we dust the paintings and we dust the sculptures. So you know it isn't it isn't all glamour, <laughs> um, but it is a really nice way of of you know keeping an eye and, and on your paintings or your mm. works and making sure that they're safe and secure, but also having that quiet moment. We get to do it when we're not open. So it's a bit like this where we can be one-on-one -on -one with our collection and really enjoy it in that way. Yeah, and these are also little ghosts. They, they move all the time. So every day I have to put them back in their place. So there's, there's something very, I mean, it's people move them. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not that they're moving by themselves. But, um, you know, it is interesting that we, you know, that we have to reposition no, a horror film, right? I know, I know. What, what's the, is, what's that, is it Thing? Oh, Thing. 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 Yeah, is it from, from the Adams family? family? There's, yep. there's one that's particularly Thing-like. <laughs> so they do go wandering and they need, they need realignment, but sorry I interrupted. Little um, small nozzles, you know, um, so they're just, yeah, just sort of backpack So you vacuums. can actually, yeah, you can get a, a conservation kit for your vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Um, and you, yeah, so it's low yeah. suction vacuum cleaner, yeah. little nozzles, those sorts of things. Yeah. No. Yeah. If you're anything like me, oops, was that Lego? <laughs> Sometimes that's deliberate. <laughs> uh, let's head into Gallery 15. All right, so we are now in the Rapture Room. Not a raptor. We're not in. <laughs> we're not in Jurassic Park. It's all right. Although probably Beatrice confuses things. Yeah. So maybe if we head this way, then you can. Yeah, then we can see some of the touchstones of the works that we're going to talk to, which is sort of this <coughs> arena here. All right, so again, rapture, a big theme. There's lots of works representing mythology, Christianity, um, big ideas, emotional experiences in here. And um, there's lots of really great small intimate moments. Sorry, I've got to tickle my throat, so I might hand over to Lee for a second. Sure. <laughs> You're right? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, I mean, this, uh, in a, you know, more, more through paintings than through sculpture, perhaps, than, um, than the human condition gallery, the, the, works, the works in this really, you know, speak to history, mythology, and allegory, some of the things that we were talking about before. Um, and, you know, you have this incredible history that spans most of our European collection, which is your collecting area. And then again, we have contemporary um, interventions throughout that, creating that sort of conversation between, you know, um, ideas of beauty and also, um, or I guess rapture, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> it always used to be, it always used to be, um, around beauty and then someone changed the title of this room and um, you know sometimes you're just like ah, I, I would like to change it again <laughs> anyway we'll take that off the record and you can start again <laughs> we're being seduction yeah yeah so I desire mean, desire all of those sort of um emotional experiences it's a sort of a heightened emotion and you've got that through you know Contemporary, contemporaneous experiences of sexuality, but also things like, of course, biblical stories. You've got Joseph's flight um, uh, from Egypt. 
rest from the flight rest on the flight from Egypt you've got beautiful uh, experiential landscapes you've got that beautiful group of four vernays there that are the four times of day so how we experience the landscape so it's 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 very much about all of those ideas you know the sublime the 19th century notion of the sublime and how we experience the world around us so it is a really big idea and a really big concept and it does mean that we can be <laughs> big and bold with what we put in here as well because we've got lots of different ideas, lots of different works spanning uh, historical paintings, uh, decorative arts obviously. You can see one of the most beautiful objects in our decorative arts collection up on the wall there which is a Elizabethan salt uh, which would have been on the table at an Elizabethan dinner and it's one of I think only 10 extant in the world and it is a beautiful object and so you know it, it in a way your rapture is part of that experience too it, your relationship with the works that you're you're coming to and you're experiencing is is part of this journey as well uh, the wallpaper in here is incredibly bold too um, and, it, and again it's a, it can be a bit divisive as well. Some people love the wallpaper, some people really don't like it but it is part of that experience as well. And thinking about a lot of these early paintings, they wouldn't have been seen on white walls. They never would have been seen on white walls. They would have been seen on coloured walls and heavily wallpapered walls, sometimes hand-painted walls as well. So, you know, it gives you more of an idea of the experience of, of the world in which some of these works were actually created. So that kind of adds to our story of them as well. One thing I did want to mention to you is that I don't know if you ever have to talk about science. I think we have to talk about that sometimes, but of course we do work with science and we work with scientists a lot as well. Our conservators are often amazing scientists. So that wonderful um, painting, uh, the, the rest on the flight into, from Egypt, uh, behind you there, which is beautiful work. I'll come around so I can point out bits to you. So we use science to learn more about our collection because obviously we're visual people. We look at the, the composition, we look at the painting techniques, we look at the, the, you know, the wonderful sort of history of the work as well. But we work with our conservators um, at Art Lab who use wonderful scientific techniques, UV, infrared, x-rays, uh, sometimes testing the pigments and paint as well. Obviously, we try to minimise the invasive um, aspects to conservation because um, we don't want to be scraping off bits of the surface. But this work's a really great example because we learnt so much. We did a, Someone requested some conservation studies of this painting and we, we did some work on it and we worked out that, in fact, the canvas was cut down and across this mountain here, it's been sewn back together. And it's been done so beautifully. You, can't see it with the naked eye, but we could see it with um, the conservation. But what was really interesting is that at some point a piece of the canvas had been excised from the painting because we know they're identical. They're the same weave, they're the same type of canvas, they're obviously from the same bolt of fabric. But yet, at some point, something was cut out and we don't, we don't know why, we'll never know why. Was it damaged? Was, did something, you know, it, that could not be fixed. Did something happen there? We don't know why, but it is, it is quite an unusual composition because it's quite crowded within that frame. So the whole composition, and if you actually have a look up closely, you can see the pentimenti, the underpainting, or the previous painting of the artist here where you can actually see the finger of the hand of Joseph that's on a, on a different angle. 
you can see that his head was further out this way and was painted a little bit more curved in. You can see here that this little, little angel, little cherub, this rock that it's standing on was actually part of the Virgin Mary's cape at one point. So it's really interesting to sort of be able to use those scientific techniques to actually learn about how an artist, oh, don't walk into the furniture, an artist interprets the work and changes their work because they often do. We see the final product, but there's so much that goes into it. We often see that with contemporary artists, but you know, we can use science and conservation to work out what's happened to these paintings in, in time and in history. Sometimes the hand of the artist, sometimes later. I know that we've got a wonderful Dutch painting in our collection where you know, it's a beautiful Dutch landscape and the Victorians didn't think there were enough figures in it, so they added a few more figures into the foreground of the painting. And that's part of the artwork's history. Um, we're probably not going to take that off now, but things do change and things, you know, people change works of art over many, many years. So it's really a nice part of our, our history and our story as well. Let's talk about Circe and Beatrice. <laughs> I think you might know Circe. So everyone loves this painting today, I'm pretty sure. But when it was first acquired for the collection, there was you know, some derision over the choice of painting. Of course, the Art Gallery of South Australia was the first gallery to buy a work by Waterhouse. Not this painting, but the other painting that's down in Gallery 13 that you might have noticed. Uh, and when this work was acquired, it um, was... <laughs> acquired as part of the 1899 Elder Bequest, so those contemporary works that were bought uh, as part of that big funding amount. And uh, when it was originally exhibited, it was slightly different. Um, the figure of the, the monster was uh, much more visible and the bubbles uh, were much less visible. So now the monster sort of made to look much more menacing now than it did originally. And we know that because it was reproduced in the Royal Academy's um, annual for that year. And so it's often a really great way to see, again, the history of a painting and, and how it was changed and developed over time. This was sort of considered to be quite garish. There were newspaper articles saying, oh, well, I suppose if they like it in the colonies, that it's all right for the students of art, but I don't think it's very good. But of course, today we know it's as one of the most iconic works in our collection. Uh, it was off display for a good three years, uh, went over to Italy uh, right at the outbreak of COVID, um, and went on display in a wonderful exhibition about Ulysses uh, there and then uh, luckily came back to us. Um, but of course, part of what we couldn't do, normally we would send a courier to collect the work, uh, a really important work, but it was of course not safe to send anyone to Italy. So what galleries and museums now are doing is we're actually doing a lot of conservation checks and um, you know, packing of works via Zoom. So we Zoomed in with the team in Italy um, and actually I think it was 7.30am their time and uh, you know, seven o'clock our time or something, PM. And uh, we went through together and checked off all of the conservation, watched them pack it and secure it in the crate and watch it go out to the truck. So, you know, the safest thing that we could do at that time, not safe for anyone to travel. So it's a good way to um, actually encounter, you know, counter that problem that we face with these sorts of works as well. Now, I think Lee would really like to talk to you about this incredible piece here. But before we start, I did want to rem remind you of Henry VIII's beautiful doublet and to um, just highlight 
how we can see over five, almost 500 years, we can see this incredible history transferred into this wonderful contemporary work that is, that is nodding to um, mythology, allegory, history, but also in a kind of intrinsic physical way, we can see the history of fashion and textiles as well from that wonderful portrait of Henry VIII. But Lee's gonna tell you all about this because she of course commissioned this wonderful work. Yeah, thanks Tansy, and that's a wonderful segue. And you know, so yeah, it's it's amazing to actually see it in real time, those Elizabethan costuming techniques. And so Julia Robinson, who is a wonderful South Australian artist, uh, studied at the Adelaide Central School of Art and teaches sculpture there. Um, she taught herself those Elizabethan techniques. She taught herself how to sew. She taught herself how to make these works. And it's really interesting because um, as, as the State Collection for South Australia, we also try to collect um, works by South Australian artists, um, or exceptional South Australian artists in depth. And so the gallery has some of her early works where she was, you know, you can actually see the development or the, you know, the ever increasing sophistication of her, um, of her making, of her, of her technique as she as she sort of worked up to to something like this, um, the work that preceded this was um, was a, a series of, of of individual sculptures that were responding to or sort of reimagining um, Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights, and so she's you know very you know she's very interested uh, interested and influenced in the history of art, but also um, uh, Greek mythology and also. Um, gothic narratives and gothic literature and so in a way this work is an incredible hybrid because it draws on the wonderful story or the quite grotesque story of um, of, of Scylla or um, as we've been told, the, the correct way to say it is Skilla, actually. It's sort of a hard K, or a hard C, rather. And, um, and so, Julia, this work um, came about through the Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art. So um, every two years, there's a different curator. And for 2020, um, I was the curator. And uh, I was looking at what artists were making and, um, and what they were responding to. And these sort of monsters and warnings kept returning in very different guises, very different forms, abstract and figurative, and through through a number of different number of different um, mediums. And Julia has always been very interested in um, in like we're saying mythology and and storytelling. And so I was like, oh, I can't have a we can't do a. a a biennial called Monster Theatres without Julia Robinson making a major new work and also part of being part of collecting for the contemporary collection it means that you're also moving in time like the word contempo or contemporary comes from contempo or with time so works of their time so sometimes you you, you know you don't have the the advantage of hindsight to be able to help make decisions you're but you're also working with artists to bring things into the collection that you know are missing and so with, um, with, with Julia, what we really wanted to see was a major single piece, um, you know, that, that really took her work to another level. And often when we're commissioning and collecting work, some of the questions that, that I ask, and a lot of this was very useful when I was able to interview 
the late James Morrison, uh, Mollison, who was, <laughs> that would have been interesting. <laughs> I was like, that would have been cool as well if <laughs> James Morrison did it. But um, James Mollison, who was the inaugural uh, director of the National Gallery of Australia. And I was like, you know, when you're collecting contemporary art, you know, what, what are some of the touchstones that you use or how do you, you know, how do you buy when things are brand new? Um, and, and everything is still in flux and often you don't know how long an artist is going to you know still continue to be an artist or whether they're going to you know stand the test of time and and he was like well some things that are quite useful are you know to ask um, does this work represent a leap in the artist's practice or does it represent a moment where they finally resolved something that they've been working through for a long time is it a work of great sort of experimentation and does it shift some of the the discourse Around, um, around art at the time. Is it the best work of art that you can buy for the available money that you have at a given time? Which is a very reasonable question. You know, is it the best, you know, ultimately, does it speak to the collection? Does it, is there a conversation with the collection? Um, and, and, you know, one which is quite hard is, you know, will it make the history books? But sometimes when works are also from the history books, that becomes interesting. And Julia Robinson, having grown up in Adelaide and, and come to the gallery many times, Circe was a real source of inspiration for this work. And so she spliced together the story of um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's um, Rappuccini's daughter which is the story of this toxic um, plant and you know set in Padova and it's about seduction again the you know the the daughter of Rappuccini who is a sort of mad scientist um, you know determined to create an incredibly poisonous toxic um, garden of plants of toxic plants um, that could only be tended to by his daughter Beatrice and at the heart of this garden was this huge flowering um, plant that only Beatrice could touch anyone else it would you know it would actually make you break out in blisters or you know they talked about the you know this incredible purple plant that that when you know a little drop of its nectar fell on a lizard it sort of fried them so you know it was the the sense of toxicity and this dangerous you know dangerous creature um, was at the heart of this gothic narrative by Nathaniel Hawthorne from 1848 and um, Julia wanted to splice together using sort of both sort of plant and mythological references to to Scylla, who is transformed from a beautiful nymph goddess um, into this writhing, multi-limbed um, creature, multi-headed creature, um, into into this sort of figure of monstrosity and danger, um, and uh, and so she wove literally wove and sewed all of those ideas together into this incredible work, which is called Beatrice. It's also purple because purple is um, associ often associated with the belladonna or monkshood, which is um, an incredibly toxic and poisonous purple plant. So, you know, it's sort of a wonderfully sort of lyrical, but also in terms of a sculpture, it's got all of the elements of a classical sculpture, the sort of contrapposto, how some elements are cantilevered, you know, some of them look impossibly poised and balanced, and there are elements where some of them are weighted inside, and some of them are, you know, have magnets like this work here, where I'm sure only Julia, or sometimes me, because I've got to move this anyway. You know, these sort of come apart, and then there's a little magnet where it just clicks back into place. There. 
yeah. <laughs> so there's um, there's a magnet there, and so all of them are, you know, it took her many months, and she used a 3D computer program to be able to hinge the work together and to, to test it out and to test where everything would go and how it would fit. And so technically, it is also an incredible work, and I think that's why so many people are drawn to it because it does, as Tansy say, go back to a history of, of fashion, of um, you know, from Elizabethan fashion to to, to now and they're very, very, very complex processes that she used to create these these cuts and these these um, these sort of gashes and all of the all of the um, decoration that she did with these very also with these very very pointy quite dangerous um, points at the end of the the tentacles. So you know it's um, yeah it's an amazing an amazing contemporary work I think. Is the change of the story from. Waterhouse of Circe, which is sort of like, you know, women poisoning women, <laughs> Circe poisoning Skiller, but it, it's sort of like a reclaiming of that femininity mm -hmm. in Julia's work, and, and that's that, you know, that notion we were talking about before of that feminising the space, and this really changes the feel of this gallery space, and it really sort of changes your approach to the story of Circe. And um, which is, of course, um, Cersei was jealous of Skiller and, and poisoned the water, and that's what we see in here. Whereas here, we actually see this incredibly empowered sort of monster figure that's, you know, sharp but beautiful and gentle, and this lovely soft colours and using these wonderful silk textiles. So it's a really interesting sort of contrast to the sort of 19th century version of the story, the male version of the story, and a reinterpretation and reinvention by a, you know, a South Australian female artist. Great. So I think we are running out of time. We have five minutes. Should we go and have a look at your beautiful dark matter, bright light? Yeah, that'll probably be a nice way to just end it on, yeah. And a bit of a break too, because it's yes. a bit more of a relief. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So as we sort of walk through here, one of the works that you would have walked under to enter the, the room that's more colloquially referred to as the death room or the memento mori room um, there's a big neon work which says save me which seems you know quite appropriate almost like a last judgment um, before you walk into into that space so you know um, sometimes those those allude to to, to other sort of um, ways that art art forms have been used actually if you go into the Sistine Chapel when you walk in it's not until you um, you turn around and look up that the last judgment is actually behind you on the wall so that sense that you've already been judged before you <laughs> even entered the room so anyway that's my little nod to that but What's interesting throughout this walk, and I guess the way that we think about the collection is that, you know, really significant iconic works of art also shape the stories that we tell and shape the way that we curate the collection. And this incredible work by Danish Icelandic artist Olafur Eliasson, which is called Dark Matter Collective, which we just put up a few months ago, um, and was a major acquisition that we were able to acquire only because of the James and Diana Ramsey Fund, a significant fund that allows us to acquire major, major works that might otherwise be or are out of our reach. And, you know, Olafur Eliasson 
um, is you know one of the one of the most collected and collectible contemporary artists, but also his market is very high. And you can also see that in terms of the materiality of the work. You know, this this work is made up of 217 solid glass spheres. They're all hand silvered, so they're sort of burnished. There's just a little section on the back, and then over that it's painted in a black matte paint and it's all suspended on um, it's 620 kilos which is all cantilevered over this from this incredibly engineered um, structure which definitely German engineering um, so he has an incredible studio in Berlin where you know um, in, in this this display um, I called it dark matter bright light because I it it brought me back to thinking about the great writer John Berger, who um, wrote a very influential text, which is often referred to in museum studies and otherwise, um, which is called Ways of Seeing. And you, you'll all know it very well. And um, and often, you know, the opening line of that book is, you know, before um, you know before we're able to read or before we understand words, you know, we're we're able to make sense of the world world through images and through seeing. And so this this display is very much about optics. And this is a wonderful work because it also mimics the way that our eyes work. And, and you know, I, I was spending a bit more time with it the other day because I, I had to write an article for, um, for The Australian and, um, about new works that come into the collection. And, you know, sometimes you, you think you know a work and then you literally have to spend more time sort of walking around it. Olaf Reliason is from a generation of artists that really wants the, the visitor to be a co-creator or co-producer in the work, that the work itself isn't completed until you've circumnavigated it, until you've sort of orbited this work. It's got, you know, it's got a lot of quite planetary references in it as well. But if you, you know, um, there's, there's this sort of incredible mo moment, and come up and have a walk around while we're doing this if you want, and also come up and sort of see yourselves in the work. And also what you can see is the entire room is captured in the work as well, and because it's a because they're spheres, they're actually um, convex lenses, right? So that means that when it'll um, refract the light going in, and it'll in this case because it's within a sphere, it miniaturizes everything um, and inverts it, which is just how our eyes work as, as well. So when we look at something, um, we we see it at a certain scale, and then you know it. The lenses of our eyes refracts the light and converts it to an image which is upside down when we see it, and then our optical nerves flip it back. Um, so, you know, I, I love the sort of um, ocular references in, in this work, and also it goes back to the history of, 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 of art as well, of artists using mirrors to work on perspectives. There's one of my favorite works ever is a wonderful Turner work, um, which is uh, in the Tate collection, and, um, and it's basically a drop of water which inside it reflects reflects the, the, the whole room around him. And there's many, MC Escher, you know, there's images of him holding a sphere and reflecting um, the, the studio back at him and himself as well. But what I love with this one is that when you get up close, you know, you can actually see into other rooms. So it sort of gives you literally eyes in the back of your head when you're walking around. So it's quite interesting while you're watching because you can see everyone else watching or you can, it's, it's also like a form of surveillance because you can actually see right into that room, you can see right 
through there. So I was sort of amazed that it's capacity to, to magnify as well. It is a magnifying glass as well. Um, but there's a sweet spot right in the middle where it goes dark or where you become invisible. You disappear as you move from one side to the other. So at one point you get eclipsed um, by and become uh, you know, the, the work becomes black and solid and opaque. And so there's that point when you stand in the middle where it becomes a singular black mass rather than a multiple, you know, multiplicity of, of effectively sort of mirrors. So um, it's, it's an amazing, you know, it, it's actually one of those works that is deceivingly simple, but it's often those works which, um, which are, you know, belie the most amount of complexity. So, and it's years and years that he's been working with spheres and mirrors and optics and lenses. And, you know, being able to show how something is made and revealing the sort of the, the, the armature and how, how something is constructed has been a big part of, a big part of his work. So, um, you know, it's pretty amazing that we have a work like this here in South Australia and at the gallery because a lot of his works are almost, you know, un not uncollectible, but extremely difficult to collect. Like, he has, if you look up these super cool projects where in Versailles, like you would have loved, you would have loved this, um, he created this giant waterfall, like a suspended waterfall. So if you look at it in the photos, it's just this looking to the palace in, this, in the middle of those symmetrical gardens and there's just this giant waterfall like just suspended from nothing. But then, um, and so it looks like a Photoshop or it looks like a Magritte painting or something. But then as you go around um, the back, it's just like scaffolding and like plumbing and the whole thing is just like a monstrosity. But it's, you know, when you look out from, from, from the palace over the garden, sorry, then it's, you know, you just see this quite surreal. I imagine. What's that? You look out from the Hall of Mirrors yeah. and you see yeah. the yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah, you would. Yeah. So anyway, um, that, that's sort of one example of his work. Another one he created is called the river, Riverbed, where he um, brought over all of these stones and basically reconstructed um, a, a, a Danish river inside the Gallery of uh, Modern Art in Brisbane. Um, so, you know, these epic, epic, you know, works of land art, which are, you know, most of the time they exist in the landscape, but he brought the landscape inside and he also, you know, shipped ice, um, icebergs from the, um, from the Arctic to the middle of the, U you know, to around the, the front of the, the um, headquarters for the UN as a protest, as an environmental protest. So he's also very active as an environmentalist as well. He's very interested in the environment and um, a lot of his works, you know, think about that in different, in different ways. So, yeah, so his, yeah, so he did a project called the Weather Project in 2003 at the Tate Modern, which was one of their first ever big commissions in the big turbine hall, which used to be a, um, you know, obviously an um, electricity station, a generator. And, uh, and basically he just created, he mirrored the entire ceiling. And I was looking at the dimensions, it's 25 metres long, that he mirrored this 25 metre long ceiling and then used all sort of mono... Um, mono uh, well, basically street lights. He used 
like street lights that you use to, you know, industrial street lights to create the semicircle which was reflected in the ceiling and it created this hovering mass um, which looked like a giant sun and, and sprayed this mist through the space. So, which, you know, is a bit like going to see Clarice Beckett, you know, so very, very atmospheric and, um, and everyone was, you know, it was amazing. I remember going to London to, to see it and lying on lying on the ground and you could like kick your legs up and see see you know see yourself in the in the in the ceiling but also it was just this it was the middle of winter in London and so you felt like yeah you know you'd you'd sort of gone to the other side of the world because it was just this wonderful you know atmospheric space and that sort of made his made his name it was a really defining work and so in here a lot of these works we're going to wrap it up now because it's time to go but um, you know the relationship to the elements, to ideas of, you know, to optics, to, to, to how light is channeled in the creation of different works, whether that's through lenses or something like Sugimoto when he actually, you know, that looks like an image of lightning, but actually he's created um, a, a thunderstorm in his darkroom to be able to make that cameraless work. Basically ran 400,000 volts of electricity through, a, through a, a generator and actually it burns through the film. And, um, and so when, it, when it's made, it's obviously a positive negative photograph. Um, so when it runs through the film on a metal plate, um, which is a conductor, it burns its way through and it's the sparks that create those sort of arteries as it runs off there. Um, so like super dangerous, took him like four years of and quite a few near-death experiences to get that, you know, so artists are amazing, you know, that they will do things, you know, in the service of incredibly implausible ideas, but, um, you know, always trying to you know, create another way of seeing things. So I also like that that looks almost like, you know, the inside of your eye if you ever go for those eye x-rays. It almost looks like sort of optical nerves or, you know, um, almost looks uh, topographical or geographical as well. So, you know, these these works that seem so simple, you know, they, they, they end up having so, so many different readings. And just in the as an end note, right in the top corner there is a work by Joseph Albers called Homage to the Square, and he was one of the um, proponents of the Bauhaus. And what he always said was the Bauhaus wasn't a school, it was an idea. And so I guess what we're also seeing as we move through and as we move through different generations of paint, uh, different generations of, of art making, that, you know, there is a sort of conceptual turn and a shift towards, you know, the shaping or the, you know, creating, visualizing ideas through through the works, which, um, you know, is is how we end up seeing, you know, this these incredibly sort of um, complex uh, works. And that always challenging the, the history that came before them while also referring to it. So thank you for your patience, such a big night. And I hope that there were some new things that, that uh, um, well, certainly from, from Tansy, maybe, maybe not from me, yeah. But, um, but yeah, thank you so much. I hope you have a great night. Thanks.